0: Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Steve Bird, and he'll be answering your questions on trout spay and the art of the swing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You'll also be able to find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of our podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, I guess that's called X now. Anyway, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast, and when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag Fly Fishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show and let other people know about the great show we're hosting tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Steve Bird about trout spay and the art of the swing. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Steve, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Flyfishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. And look for the link under Steve's section that says "Register for our free drawing." Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Steve Bird, his new book "Trout Spay and the Art of the Swing." Now, here's how you can win his book: you have to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk, Steve and I talk about during the show, and just submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our home page. It's the same text box you can use to ask questions during the show with. So um, fill that in, put your, uh, your answer, your name, and your email address, and you, you may win uh, Steve's book, Trout's Bay and the Art of the Swing. So take good notes, pay attention, and good luck with that. Our guest tonight is Stephen Bird. Steve is a retired guide and freelance writer living beside the Columbia River in northeast Washington. Steve is the trout-spay editor for Swing the Fly magazine. He's the author of Upper Columbia Fly Fisher and, more recently, Trout Spay and the Art of the Swing, and that's published by Swing the Fly Press. His work on angling subjects has appeared in California Fly Fisher, The Drake, Fly Fishing and Tying Germ, as well as numerous regional outdoor publications. Steve, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hi,
1: Roger. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, good to have you back. Last time we were talking about fishing the Upper Columbia River, so that's been a while. That's uh, been a while. Yeah, yeah, but good to have you back. And fun things to talk about here tonight, about Trout's Bay, which, uh, as you and I were joking about before the show, a lot of things have new names, but have been around for a long time. And I think you've been doing this for a long time, right?
1: I have been. I started about 23 years ago. Wow! Uh, When I decided I didn't have a long enough rod to uh, reach the fish on my home water, which is up to a quarter mile wide in some places.
0: Oh wow! 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 Yeah, what inspired you to write the book, Trout Spay and the Art of the Swing?
1: I saw I needed something to write, to be frank, and uh, I wanted to write something worth my time and something that I thought I knew enough about to write about, and. You know, most people come to spay through steelhead or salmon fishing, and uh, mine was kind of unique. It just came from the necessity of living on a big river and having to make a a big fish and uh, having to make a longer cast. And the fact that the way the river is set up, conflicted water, average six-knot current, uh, really lends itself well to a downstream approach. The fish here hit really well on a downstream swung wet fly, which I was already doing before I started spay fishing. Just, you know, our old-fashioned way of fishing wet flies before bobbers came around in the early 80s. And uh, it just, i have been in the search for a longer rod to make a longer cast, and I got into it. So I decided it was getting big. Trout spay has been getting really big over the last 20 years and more recently over the last 10 years. And I thought, wow, maybe right. nobody has written... Nobody's written a book on it yet. And uh, another, there's a bunch of other guys up here on the Columbia that have been doing spay for quite a while, too, out of necessity. And I noticed that over the years, we were developing fly styles that incorporated a lot of the aspects, design elements of uh, early classic salmon fly patterns and steelhead patterns, as well as trout swing patterns. and. I kind of saw unique regional designs kind of developing, and I thought that was interesting and something worth writing about, uh, as well as teaching people the pleasure of swinging wet flies without having to float them under bobbers, where you kind of miss out on the scenery all day while you're watching the bobber. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I used to, like I said, I needed something to write. Nobody had written that book yet, and I figured well that would be a good one, and I'll just go ahead and write down what I know, and include a uh, catalog of the flies that we use. The the catalog in my book contains about 200 fly patterns for trout spay or just swinging wet flies.
0: Swinging wet flies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you said, you know, trout spay is getting more and more press under the name of trout spay. And, um, yeah, so it's. I guess people have always thought of spay fishing as a salmon and a steelhead. You know method, but yet there, as we're going to see, I think there's, there's a lot of more applications to trout and even to other species. I've heard <laughs> being used on right. bass and other things.
1: Well, yeah. it'd be incorrect to think that uh, it was just for salmon and uh, steelhead yeah. because people in Ireland and uh, Scotland and uh, Scandinavia have been fishing for sea trout. You know, for as long as there's been reels and spay rods, we've been fishing. trout as well. But yeah, as it's been developed for inland trout, the more recent development, the more recent availability of uh, lighter rods for it has definitely made it boom and grow, but it's it's been around for, the idea has been around for a long time.
0: Right, right. So I think you said already, I was going to ask you what got you started in spade fishing, but it sounded like it was out of necessity, more or less, right?
1: Exactly. Just that was the need for a tool that would give me a longer cast and you know swing my fly. It Was mainly actually because of hatches. We have huge hatches here in the spring, mm-hmm. and uh, they hatch over a broad surface of the river, not just concentrated. So you know the ability to be able to cover as many as much water as possible. You know of course would put your fly in front of more potential customers. So I saw that. And then a lot of situations with we have very conflicted sections here, and sometimes the hatch is going on on the outside of that, and you want to get over that to get to them. And it was just the need for a longer cast to cover more fish per cast,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you know to be able to place the fly and places far away that I wouldn't be able to reach with the single hander. Yeah,
0: that's up there on the Columbia and a lot of those rivers in Washington. They're just too deep to wade out very far, I take it, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, right. Most of the water I fish, I don't even wear waders. I'm just wearing wellies because it just drops off so deep and slippery from the edge. That nope. And, uh, you know, this fish concentrated fairly really close to the edge, too. It really drops off out of sight 10 feet from the shore there. It's, uh, so there's really most places, on the American reach anyway, on the American side, there's, mm-hmm. there's not much need to wade.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, what? when we say, quote, trout spay, what are we talking about there?
1: We're talking about basically the old-fashioned wet fly swinging method performed with a two-handed rod. Now, the cast can be performed with a single-hand rod. I mean, the rod is just a tool of delivery. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it doesn't matter if you could read my book and tie those flies and use all the methodology that's outlined there without having a two-hand rod. Mm -hmm. However, when you perform the basic wet fly swing with a two-handed rod, we call that trout spay.
2: I just returned
1: from a trout spay event, a two-day event in West Yellowstone that was put on by uh, Big Sky Anglers. And, you, oh. and I really, there, I really saw the mecca of trout spay, you know, what those guys are doing. Like, we were on the Madison River there, which would be a you know perfect river for a little two- or three-weight spay. In fact, that whole country and all those rivers out there, the guys are using the light, you know, two- and three-weight spay rods, mm-hmm. 10 to 11-and-a-half-foot rods, and they're just perfect for those rivers. You can really cover a lot of water fast. You can't cast across the Madison with your single-hand rod, but most places you can with a two-hand rod. Uh, okay. the, the little two and three weights are very light, very sporty to use. You know, They're not overgunning the smaller fish at all. And uh, you've got to remember, if you got a long rod, you got leverage on the fish. But actually, the other end of the line, the fish has got more leverage on you, too. So. <laughs> it's not like you have. It's not like you have too much rod on them. It doesn't work out that way.
2: Yeah, so I saw yeah.
1: that there. How effective, you know? You got the Madison, which is like a 150-mile-long ripple run, right? The ripples and tail out, ripple and tail out for miles. Right. You could just walk down that river, just swinging casually, relaxed, and uh, harvest a lot of fish out of it by that method. So yeah, very effective, very effective for gathering fish on, on rivers about that size.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that can be a, a very wide river itself, especially as you get out of Yellowstone.
1: Right, uh, right. Down, yeah, yeah. The uh, so um, you're able to cover it. The plat might be another good one. You know, I haven't fished it, but I've, you know, judging by the size of it, it looks to me like it would be ideal for a light two hander.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's you know. Uh, my next question is, what what would be, uh, why is a two-handed bay rod for trout better than a single-handed? And it sounds like distance is one of the, the things. and distance, he's a, I would him. say, well,
1: yeah, primarily fun, for one mm-hmm. thing. Well, it's fun to do. It's easy. It's easy. The cast has got like about a long, one-year learning curve, just like anything else. But, you know, basically with the smaller, lighter rods and the smaller waters, you know, basically you're... You could do a roll cast, right, and uh, right. put out as much line as you would overhead casting. But another huge advantage is is uh, you don't have to do a back cast, so to, you know you're not going to get tangled in the stuff behind you. Right. Yeah. So that's a huge yeah. advantage: is being able to throw that much line without even having to worry about a back cast, getting your back cast caught on stuff or your fly tipped off on the rocks, whatever, while you're casting but, behind you with a traditional but overhead. you do. Cast.
0: Yeah, but you do have to be out on the water, right? Because you're using the friction of the water to make your cast.
1: Right? Well, you can do it right from the bank. You're doing it right from yeah. the bank. The line's out in front of you, so. Okay. Yeah, no, you don't need to be in the water at all. You could stand on the shore of a lake and make the cast. In fact, a lot of guys now are throwing from the beach too, as well. So. Hmm. Okay. You, know, you just uh, you're throwing the whole head. If you got a head, say basically you got a 35 foot head, and you're standing on the bank. And you've got, you know, an eleven to fourteen foot rod. You're just going to pull a belly into that line, get it up on top, and just roll it out there. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's not even okay. going to come to you. It's not even going to come to you.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk of course more the, about course the flying. D
1: might come up parallel to your leg. You know, uh, yeah. if you're making a really putting a really big D into it. But no, you're not throwing any of it behind you. There's no need to be in the water.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll talk when I mean, we talk about tackle here in a minute. We can uh, dig into those lines that you illustrated in your book and talked about. I'd like to learn more about those. We uh, Gary Kaufman in North Carolina wrote and he says I've done neither spay fishing or tenkara fishing, so my question is one of absolute ignorance. What's the difference between these two techniques in terms of when and how to use each?
1: Well, we actually, have a lot in common. As for when and how. Uh, That's kind of gray, because really one could use either method pretty much anywhere and make it work. But anyway, I'll I'll read an excerpt from my book right here, actually answer that question in my book. Oh, okay. Yeah. A few things are truly new. Trout fishing with two-handed rods is not a new practice or even recent, and the origin is not confined to Europe alone. There was a time back before the advent of reels and line guides when fishing rods were made of wood or if you lived on the Asian continent, you had the advantage of lighter bamboo stock. These lacked the flexion to be good casters, so relied on rod length to achieve distance. The old wooden and bamboo rods were too long, heavy, and cumbersome to be effectively used with only one hand, so two-handed fishing was the usual mode of operation, and various roll casts, anchor point casts, and tosses were the rule. We know the Greeks were casting flies with furled rods long before the first millennium. However, though there is a mention of artificial flies, there was no surviving manuscripts regarding the use of artificial flies prior to the 15th century introduction to printed books into Europe. What we gather from both English and Bavarian texts from that period seems to indicate a tankara style of fly fission already quite developed, and the flies of England and Europe well thought out as described looking much like modern soft-tackle wet flies. Treatise of Fly Fishing with an Angle, one of the earliest works in print, thought to be authored by Dame Juliana Bernards, an English nun, describes the making of a three-piece angle fishing rod. The sporting abbess recommends a butt section or staff of hazel, willow, or ash, cut between September and February, a fathom and a half in length, about nine feet, the butt is about as big around as a man's arm before drying in the chimney or smoke hole of a medieval house, skies to size and shape. The center is bored to accept the crop, which is the other two rod sections, the midsection of hazelwood and the tip from blackthorn, or willow, or juniper. The crop sections are assembled with metal furrows, resulting in a rod of about 18 feet in length, no reel. The angle is rigged with a braided horsetail line about the same length as the rod, fastened to a permanent loop fixed to the tip. This outfit served to both bait, fish both bait and artificial flies, as fly rods did before the advent of the spinning wheel. The heavy braided horsetail line functioned much the same as a modern fly line, providing weight for the cast. So we see that uh, before yeah. reels, we were, all, we were all tankara fishing. <laughs>
0: and, uh, Everybody was,
1: yeah. And Juliana yeah. and Walt, Isaac Walton, in his book, is no reel either. And he describes fishing both flies and bait with the same rod. Yeah. So that, because, you know, you couldn't perform modern overhead single-hand casts with those rods. They were cast with two hands. I saw some yeah. Vietnamese immigrants fishing crappie one time with those long reelless rods. They're telescoping rods. They had about 18, 20 feet long. And they were throwing a little barber with a jig under, and I was watching them, and I was noticing they were spade casting them. They were just huh. pulling those barber yeah, on the rod. flipping them out, right? Load, load the rod and just flipping it out there with a big roll cast. And, I mean, those guys were, oh. you know, pulling off, you know, 56 roll casts, six-foot roll casts with those rods. So well, when did a, we used to – There's it, not much it, difference. Not much yeah. difference between Ben yeah. and, and really. Seems like a funny question at first, you know, but then when you really start thinking about it, you go, well, really, there's not much difference between the two, really. Uh, You know, the addition of a reel to hold more line and guides gives us the advantage of being to throw extra line on the cast. Yeah. Um, There's the difference. As far as applying the method, I know there's a lot of guys doing real fancy stuff with Tenkara rods like fishing big rivers for big fish with them, and fishing in lakes and stuff. So there's really probably no end to what you could do with it if you wanted to apply it. I would say it's more realistically applied on smaller streams, right? Small streams, mm-hmm. the Tunkara, whereas a spade rod, you know, allows you to comfortably fish, you know, really large waters.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I interviewed Karen Miller, and she's heavily involved to has a company, based around Tenkara, and she's caught about every kind of fish you can think of, Tenkara. But really? so the thing that, things that, I mean, talking about tarpon and bonefish and stuff like that, but uh, yeah. I think the biggest limiting factor with Tenkara is, like you said, the length of the line. You're kind of stuck with that in many right. cases, I think. But whereas with spay, you can feed out more line and get longer casts. Uh, right. but, yeah, you're the, right. But- I
1: you can also I think, play a big fish.
0: Yeah, yeah. The um, I think in Japan it was probably just like what you described when it was developed over there. It was, you get a stick, you put some line on it, you manufacture a hook, and I think you you were talking about that in your book too about you know how I think didn't you hand right. carve a, a hook yourself to just kind of see what it would be like and
1: right. Yeah, yeah. I read something about the Scandinavians carving their hooks out of different kinds of hardwoods, yeah. juniper. I've so juniper mm-hmm. growing here, so I tried carving one and tied a fly on it, caught a fish on it.
0: Yeah, so there, yeah, out of necessity. Probably where there
1: was, you had to keep sharpening it because as a soaked up water, it would lose its point.
0: Yeah, yeah, it could probably harden it with fire or something, too, I suppose.
1: So. Right, we, well, uh-huh. hooks have been around for a long time. We go all the way back. We found some, like 13,000-year-old hooks in Okinawa that were carved from seashells and,
0: Oh, yeah, well, you know, that would work, wouldn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I it was one of those things like the wheel that was probably pretty much a universal invention, you know, just developed out of it was just so practical, you know, it just seemed like a logical thing to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a uh, quick break here. And when we come back, Steve, we'll talk more about trout spay and the art of the swing. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top of the line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products in their fly shop are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866- 845-9284. Again, it's the uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Steve bird about trout spay and the art of the swing. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay. So, Steve, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? I know, you know, you been spending the last, I don't know, how long putting this book together? Quite a while, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I had it going on the side burner for a few years. And, uh-huh. and then uh, finally settled down with some friends, you know, informing it. I need to fill up pages, and I wanted to really check you know, the information I put into it. Uh, Zach Williams from Swing the Fly helped me with it. Bruce Crook from D.C. helped me. Trey, Jeff Cottrell, lots of my friends, lots of the local Columbia stay guys, you know, input from them. And uh, so uh, probably a year writing it, you know, and when I started putting it all together and got down to it and went through yeah. the editing process with friends as well. Zach uh, edited it. And, uh, so it now you're retired. Making it.
0: Yeah. Now you're retired from guiding now, but uh, you're still doing some speaking engagements. I think you were telling me you were just at an event or something, right?
1: Well, yeah. I just came back from uh, the spay event out in uh, West Yellowstone. And right, after, actually, I just came back from uh, the uh, red shed spay clave on the Clearwater in Idaho. And that was a blast staying at uh, Poppy's down there. Shout out to Poppy. In the red shed. And uh, thanks for uh, space number 168B, Poppy, even though we find out <laughs> it doesn't really exist until we get there. So it was a blast. I got a 16 pound uh, B run buck while I was there that fought like a berserker on mushrooms. It was crazy fish. I've
0: wow. caught bigger
1: ones, but I don't think ever a more hard fighting or longer fighting fish. It was a lot of fun.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah,
1: yeah. The clay was great and we went there to show off, you know, display the books from Swing the Fly and stuff. and met a lot of people and uh, just a lot of fun. A really great event. For anybody that's interesting in spay, those are annual events in West Yellowstone. I, I think that one's generally the last week in September followed by the spay clave at Poppy's on September 30th. So those two events are pretty close. Somebody wanted to make a trip west and fish Yellowstone and go over and fish the uh, the east side Snake River drainage It's pretty close by and uh, make a really great trip for anybody who's interested in spay.
0: Yeah, there you go. Okay. A
1: lot, of, a lot of really great spay guys there, both trout spay and steelhead uh, guys. And uh, if you really want to get good, hang out with the guys who are good. And uh, you, right. you learn a lot at those places.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So let's uh, let's talk about tackle. What's an ideal rod for trout spay? And I know there's probably a lot of variables there, but how do you go about well, picking a rod for the water you're going to fish?
1: Yeah, rods are like golf clubs. You know, it's good to have more than one. Uh, <laughs> you, you want to match the rod to the fish and the size of the water and the fish you're liable to encounter there. So I would say on the streams, the medium size. The largest blue liners and, uh, you know, smaller rivers, larger streams and smaller rivers that most of us fish most of the time. And you could only have one. I don't really like that one. You can only have one. But if you could only have one, I'd say probably an 11 and three-weight. Okay. In my book, I said that, and I said a four-weight, thinking about my home water. But uh, really, for... For the ones most of us fish most of the time, and you could yeah. only have one, I would say an eleven and a half foot three weight. That seemed to be like what all the guides that were doing trout spay out in uh, West Yellowstone liked. Were
2: you, were you using, I'd yeah. say that was a yeah. pretty
1: good ideal. If you were going to go say fish the Missouri, that would be a, definitely the rod you would want.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but again, yeah. that depends. on you might go to trout fishing in Alaska, where you would want. Uh, You would want something, you know, the whole spectrum apply to trout. Like here on the Columbia, we're using, depending, like sometimes on cadus hatches, I'll use a lighter rod. I like a uh, 12 and a half foot five weight here. And uh, generally, for generally swinging from the bank with no fish, no action on the surface, swinging bigger flies, I like a uh, 14 foot seven weight. Some of the guys up in Canada are using 16 foot eight and nine weights, if you can imagine. The trout here average 19 inches, 20 to 24 inch trout are fairly common. So that's not too big of a gun. But again, match the rod to the river, the size of the river and the size of the fish you're liable to encounter. I'd say if you were (laughs) going to seek a happy medium, it'd probably be somewhere, you know, a three weight. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, trout spay can be done with a single-handed or a
1: two-handed rod, Right. The cast can be done with a single-handed or a two-handed rod. The cast can be performed in a single hand. So, the thing is, with a double hander, you've got the advantage of a butt, you know, to pull the cast. Like so mm-hmm. if you're, like we were, say you were casting a lure with your two-handed with your spinning rod, and you want to get an extra long cast, you grab the end of the butt, right? So you can that's right,
0: that's right. Pull
1: yeah. it to get extra distance. Well, that's the theory behind the, the you know a rear grip on a stay rod. So. It does allow more distance.
0: Is there a way to convert a single-handed rod into a spade rod? Are there any
1: Actually, yeah. I extensions? do a chapter in my book on making a conversion. I also qualify that by saying I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but if you really want to do it, I think the best rod to do it with is if you have an old graphite 10 to 11 foot 6 weight around. I would say that would probably be the most ideal. You would want to, like, uh, behind your real seat, you would want to take out the plug, or if there's no plug, saw it off. If you have an old rod somewhere, an old glass rod or something you don't use, Uh uh, take some calipers and uh, mark a section to fit in that'll just go up under the real seat, and then leave enough of it hanging out the back to uh, accept the uh, rear grip that you have. And epoxy it in there and put the rear grip on. I give detailed instructions for that in my book. If you want to do okay. it, then yeah. when you get it done, I mean, if the rod's rated a six weight, you have got to spay. You're planning on spay casting with it, and you want to go two weight line over. What the rod says, it'll spay cast better.
0: Okay, is that just applying to a converted rod, right?
1: That's Not a to a rod that's converted, yeah. right? A rod that's made for spay will have a a larger grain window, you know, and it'll, it'll it'll be able to throw heavier lines or a wider range of lines, whereas a conversion I wouldn't go more than two weights over what the designation is is a danger you know with the rigors of spay casting, there is a danger of breaking it, so you know if you stay okay. and actually i for a for a conversion made like that you could use a head but if, uh, a double taper line is really good too for learning. the heavier line body and the D gives you a better uh, roll cast a little bit more weight in the head there for a, for a cast so a mm-hmm. double taper line is a good one for that conversion and a conversion that small and light you're probably going to be using it for you know lighter lighter bugs and stuff you know smaller right. Where you don't right. need to make a super long cast, although it will cast probably with practice eventually longer than it did as a single hander.
0: Okay, what's the difference between a trout spay rod and a switch rod? <laughs>
1: Actually, uh, you want to hear that story? I got I can read. I got that in my book too. I wrote that. Okay, <laughs>
2: okay. I'll read it.
1: Okay. This comes straight from Bob Meiser, the guy that coined the term. Okay. Uh, Let me see okay. Match the rod to the size of the river and the fish you're apt to encounter there. For trouting, I recommend the lightest rod you can get away with on a particular water, taking into consideration the size of flies you plan to use. Large streamers may require heavier rod line combinations to turn them over. I once read that the term switch rod was coined to describe shorter two-handed rods designed to perform the double-hand overhead cast Puget Sound surf anglers prefer for boosting heavy 15 to 30-foot sink tips. And as the term is currently used, that is particularly true, Though not actually the origin of the term. Fact-checking for this book, I decided to contact rod maker Bob Miser, who is the originator of the term. Bob, founder of R.B. Miser Fly Rods and a pioneer of trout Bay in the Pacific Northwest, graciously shared the real story, and we both got a chuckle out of it. In the 1990s, Bob became enamored with the notion of trouting with light two-handed rods, and as there weren't any available the lighter weights, he was considering at the time he built himself a couple. Paul Miller and the late Bob Quigley, originator of the Quigley Cripple Dry Fly, invited him down to southern Oregon to fish for half-pounders, so Bob went down, taking his light two-handers with him. They got on the fish, but the fish required a long cast, and Miser, having the advantage with a two-hander, was going to town on them, While Quigley and Miller struggled trying to get the distance. So, of course, the guys wanted to try the two-handers as well. Though neither Miller or Quigley knew how to stay cast at the time, they were able to overhead cast and generally roll out casts far enough to reach the fish, and everybody did well. So the three friends, Spent the day switching rods, and uh, they determined, uh, what would they call this new rod? And they just say, well, we'll call it a switch rod. <laughs> they've been switching, having turns with it all day, right? So then uh-huh. the term got out into circulation, and the other marketers picked up on this snazzy new term. They were wanting to get guys into you know, make trout spay rods and get guys yeah. into it. And they didn't want to scare anybody away with having to learn how to actually spay cast right away, so they were making these short ten to eleven and a half foot rods that they were selling as switch rods. You know, mm. some of them even have removable rear grips, so you could not be scared by that either. And uh, <laughs> you know, you would <laughs> you could cast them either single handed or two handed, and it's as simple as that. As far yeah. as actions go and stuff, you kind of walk. The term is going out. It, the term yeah. is outlived it's usefulness actually. Yeah. There's still yeah. some guys using it but really when you think about it, this it's you heard the origin, I mean, you know Yeah, I never heard that a, story.
0: That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just
1: a light two handed rod is all it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's so light that you're able to cast it with one hand, so the marketer started selling it as a rod that you could switch to either one hand or either two one. hand. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. What about you know, um Reels,
0: anything special you use for? Not really,
1: just a reel that, you know, that the line fits on, one that balances with the rod. And remember, the uh, you got two hands on the rod, so you don't have a balancing point where just your one hand is going to go. It's a little bit more wide open, right? So I would say, you know, just match the reel to the rod. Uh, all the reel sizes are available. I would say a rod, like, say, for example, if you were going to buy a three-weight rod, right, well, like we discussed, I would say, you know, for the three-weight, a three-weight spay, you'd want a reel that you'd use on a seven- or eight-weight single-hand rod. You'd be about right for that.
2: Okay, okay. What's another uh, thing,
1: too. The, the okay. larger the diameter of the reel, the faster you're going to pick up line. So right. if you're fishing for larger trout like here on the Columbia, where they have a habit of uh, charging you, you know, you can uh, you can pick up more line quicker. Yeah. You know, get them on the yeah. reel. So.
0: Yeah. Well, but no, uh, nothing
1: in particular. In fact, for Trout Bay, I actually prefer quick paw reels. You know. The standard trout reels. You know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nothing special. Okay. What about the line styles that are used today? Uh, can you talk about the advantages, disadvantages of each one? You know, we talk well, about that, would take us,
1: that would take us two hours to go through that. <laughs> okay. I have a whole section <laughs> in my book on that. There's a lot of lines. The basic spay lines are short belly, mid belly, and long belly spay. Okay, mm-hmm. For most trout spay applications, you, there's guys up here using long bellies, but I would say for most people, most trout spay applications, like a standard spay line, you wouldn't go any longer than a mid belly line, which is – you know that's 35 to 40 feet right in there i mean a short belly line uh the lines designed for trout spay are generally 35 feet or under good guide for that is uh about three times your rod length or head wants to be three times your rod length plus or minus five feet okay so if you got a if you got a 12 foot rod well then a 36 foot head would be three times its length, okay? Now you could go five feet shorter. It's easier to go shorter than longer. You could go five feet longer, too. An experienced caster wouldn't have any problem picking up and turning that over, but an inexperienced caster, somebody just getting into it, we'd better stick with a line that's, you know, three times the rod length or, you know, five feet minus that. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, a rod would be, be, it comes out about the same, on average, for sprout, trout spay lengths, the same as it would for asthma line, right, which is 30 feet beyond the tip to load the rod, ideally. So a 30-foot head would be pretty much ideal on most trout spay lengths and weights. So and then you got a number of lines in that length, right? Uh, there's versatile lines. Some of them are good. But I prefer if you're going to get a, you want a line that's, uh, you're able to change tips with. There's a lot of lines on the market right now that are made to be used with tips. In fact, in trout Bay, as far as tips go, there's going to be very few situations you would need more than a poly leader. Okay, any kind of line pretty much would carry a poly leader. They're very light tips. You know, they're available in lengths from five feet. To 15 feet for trout spay I never even get to a 10 feet very very rarely most of the time here on the Columbia which is a big river I'm using a, a poly leader actually I'm using a uh, the line I'm using is a, a rage it's a uh, um, oh, who the heck makes it? uh, airflow rage compact mm-hmm. it's uh, 30 feet in length and with that I'll attach a poly leader they're available for floating hovering to sinking up to eight inch per second sink rate and i just carry a five footer five foot six or seven inch sink rate with me and another one that's uh it's seven foot seven eight sink rate if i want to go really deep and that's about all i need for that so so when uh, you're, you're you know, just most of the lines for trout spay nowadays there's a whole bunch on the market and i mean we could spend hours going down through them mm-hmm. and well let's Break Google, a break it down. Yeah, yeah.
0: Let's break it down specific? for well for people that uh, have never, you know, trout spade or spade cast. Right. There's a lot of these terms that they're not familiar with, you know, in regular situations with casting. We've got lines, we've got heads, we've got tips, we've got leaders. Right. Can you kind of walk us out from the real out? How do you build a spade line? Because it's different. Right.
1: Right. Well, my own preference is a uh, a head, which is not a full line, but it's just like the, the casting head that's going to be out beyond your rod, rod tip when you make the cast. You know, and that's the one we just discussed. Right. Average of 30 feet long, right? So right. behind that, I want to use a monofilament shooting line. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of shooting lines available, but the best way to go on the lighter outfits is, is a monofilament shooting line. That would be a 30-pound test. I like 30 pounds. Some guys like lighter, but I can't feel it well enough when my hands are cold. 30 is, I think, probably the easiest to use. Mm-hmm. Uh doesn't require a backing. You can skip that, the Dacron backing and just fill the reel with the mono. Uh, okay. So you got mono going fill.
0: out to your head.
1: 30-pound 30, right? 30 mono and the head attached to that.
0: And then tips on top of that.
1: The tip attaches to the head, yep. Okay. And again uh, in Trout Bay I would probably be gonna be very few situations where you would need more than a, there's lots of different kinds of tips available for salmon steelhead fishing, like for use with skagit lines. Uh, not really trout spay gear. So for trout spay I would say, you know, 85% of situations, all you're gonna need is a full floating line or a poly leader or a, a, several poly leaders in a wallet to meet the situation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So anything, and now there's lots of lines on the market that are made for trout spay. And all of those lines are able to accept poly leaders. So if a guy and really nowadays. wanted to narrow it down and choose a, a trout spay line for his rod, a new rod, some guy that was just getting into it, I would just Google trout spay lines, and then mm-hmm. you're going to be able to get all the manufacturers that are offering, and there's going to be explanations there for each type of line. But the basic line I'm outlining, it's a very simple system. Like I say, the monofilament can replace the backing. That background backing sucks anyway. Uh, you'll, the mono will give you more backing than you'll ever need. and it's Right, cheap. cheaper too. It yeah, fills yeah. it real quick and... Uh, if you have a fish in salt water with it, you can rinse it out. The thing with dacron, that dacron or uh, braided backing, is it will soak up salt water and you won't even be able to rinse it out, and it'll rot your reel at the core. So uh, I like monofilament all the way. Uh, a good, you want a good uh, low memory mono. The best one I ever found was Stren Catfish, and they quit making it. Berkeley Big Game is okay. You want to pre-stretch it. And uh, there are some monos available that are low memory, and uh, so you can get those. I don't have a whole list of them. I'm kind of yeah. isolated out here, and I've been using the ones <laughs> I've been using for years. Amnesia is another good one. So it's kind of expensive. The Berkeley Big Game is probably your best bet, you know, for one to fill up your reel with, and uh, after okay. you're shooting one.
0: And then on the on to that tip we're going to be putting a leader from
1: there, right? Right. Well, if I'm using a full floating line, rather than it. Now, most of these lines that are made to take tips, mm-hmm. you don't even need to use a tip on. You could go use them just the way they are. And for oh. that, you would want to use a long, mono leader. Uh, as okay. long as, if you're going to fish full floating, as long as you can comfortably cast with your rod. But generally, 12 to 15 feet for the leader. Okay, and I like a uh, I like at least a two foot mono, thirty pound mono butt on that, and to that you can attach a store bought tapered leader. Uh, oh, okay. Like store bought tapered leader to that. I like to I buy my leaders. Like I I buy generally I buy a seven foot leader that tapers to like seven or eight pound test. Entire ring onto the end of that, or tiny you know the metal rigging right. ring, yeah, a very, very tiny spro swivel is also good, and then uh now you've got a pretty semi permanent leader, all you got to do is tie your tippets off to that right. ring, like you small swivel, and when the you know when the tippet gets shaggy, you just cut it off at the ring and tie a new one on yeah. a leader like that it'll last you a couple of years. Uh, so that's how I, I'll make the leader. So I'm, you know, 12 to 15 foot leader on the floating line. And like I say, you don't need a tip if you want to go full floating. That mono butt will act as a, a tip to carry the line. If I'm going to go with a sink tip now, with steel head on a poly leader, generally guys will go with a five foot leader, right? Maybe just a straight leader. Up the pigtail, you'll notice there's a little pigtail when you buy the poly leaders, a piece of mono that sticks out at the end of it about 12 inches. You can put a loop in that or a ring on it or a swivel and then tie a straight whatever pound test. If you're going to go really light, if you're fishing like small soft tackles and stuff with that, I'll go with another section, like a heavier section, like maybe 8-pound test to the pigtail and then go to my... Put a ring on that, and then go to the tippet, whatever tippet size I need. After that, and generally, that all together will be about seven feet long off the sinking poly leader, which is actually a sink tip. It's really not a leader, mm-hmm. but uh, generally okay. about a seven foot a seven foot leader on the sink tip. Okay. To make it simple.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: And, and okay. fluoro fluoro too as well. I like to use fluoro as well on the. Uh, on my long readers too, you know, fish, fish and wet flies, I try to as much as possible use fluoro. Yeah, okay.
0: Let's take another quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, casting and presentation and uh, and then on to flies after that. So lots lots of material to cover still. So hang tight, we'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies to catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, and we're talking with Steve Bird about trout spay and the art of the swing. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, so... um, and we do have a few questions coming in here, Steve. Uh, well, this one, Chegg Owings in Moscow, Idaho, just asked, have you used, because he's talking about lines, uh, have you used the commando lines for a single-handed spay?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't used okay. them. I've seen guys use them, though, and they work really good.
0: Okay, okay. The guys I've um, seen
1: using them, but I don't own one. I don't own one.
2: Okay.
1: I've heard a lot of good about them, though. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, this is
0: somebody that, uh, <laughs> I had to read the whole thing <laughs> before. I,
1: but, Uh-oh, uh, might be John, one of my friends. be careful. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, John Sanders in Bellingham, Washington. He said, I had the privilege of spending a day on the Upper Columbia guided by Steve on two occasions. Steve cost me a lot of money after the last trip because <laughs> I then had Bob Weiser build me my Upper Columbia special spay rod which is nothing Uh, short uh, of incredible. (laughs) Steve uh, is an expert at what he is talking about. (laughs) So that's why, you know, I had to read the whole thing. I said, well, he cost me a lot of money. I didn't know. (laughs)
1: Maybe you uh, broke uh, his rod or what. I don't uh, know, you know?
0: Yeah. So anyway, that's a... Yeah.
1: Well, see, there you go. I did Josh some good. See, there you go. (laughs) Buy my book. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Cost him some money, huh? I'll have uh, to go back and see what he left me for a tip. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Treg Owings also asked here, Are you doing a loop on both sides of the fifty pound butt?
1: No. I'm fastening the butt with a nail knot to my uh main line
0: okay. or my
1: tip. In some cases when I run out of pigtail I'll fasten that a new pigtail on there. And I fasten that on there with a nail knot. Or an all bright knot, an all bright knot. You gotta be careful with monocoral lines. Uh, if you've got a monocore line, you're better off to use an Albright knot or weld the loop and then put a loop on it. Or if you've got a loop, put a loop on it. I don't use a loop on both ends. I'll use a loop to attach it to the main line if the main line isn't worn out and has a factory loop on it. So I'll loop to loop that, but then I splice my tapered leader to that rather than use a loop because I don't like a lot of loops on my line.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Make and fun. you really, you're not going to need to remove that anyway if you use a ring or a swivel at the end of your leader for your tippet. So you're probably not going to, you know, you're not probably not going to need to be re- refastening that anyway.
0: Right, right. Okay, that's us so talk
1: good, about... Good to reduce the loop-to-loops on your leader. They're fly right. catchers. Yeah, Especially if exactly. you're using double fly rigs and... Uh, yeah, if you don't need them, if it's just not necessary, if you're using a tippet ring or a swivel, and uh, you got a perm- that, uh, pigtail permanently attached to the butt, you know, if you do occasionally have to tie a new swivel on it, well, you got two feet of butt there, that'll last you, you know, a lot of reties if you ever need to retie, rather than have the loop there.
0: Right, right, definitely. That loop yeah. will
1: drag your fly up on top of the water, too, so... It creates more okay. surface tension. It will drag your fly to the surface. So good to get rid of those loops. Okay.
0: Let's talk about casting and presentation. Now, when we're talking about trout spay, we're primarily using downstream presentation. Is that correct? Or Yes. Okay. And uh, can you kind of break down the different parts of a trout spay wet fly presentation? It doesn't sure. have to the regular... wet flies, right? I mean, you've done poppers and other... Top water stuff that way too, right? The primarily, sure.
1: wet- well, if I was going to use poppers and top water stuff, I might do a different approach. I might cast slightly upstream, so I can see okay, yeah. them drifting, drag free as long as possible. Okay, but let's get back to the wet fly swing. Yeah, and the, okay. the basic wet fly swing, it was very well described by Pete Heide in the Creel years ago. But basically, it's this: you cast at 90 degrees, right? If you need to, mend upstream, okay, to get it sinking a little bit. Or if you've got really slow water, it's so a slow water in front of you, you might want to well make a downstream mend so the <laughs> water pressure will build up against the belly and take it down a little quicker. But you cast it 90 degrees. It's going to drift from 90 to about 45 degrees. And then at that point, it's going to start to swing. So you just fish it right out through the swing. If I'm fishing trout, I want to maybe activate the fly a little bit, leave the rod low, okay, to the water, and activate the fly with your line hand by giving three-inch pumps, right? Now, you can imagine, you know, the hackle on that fly, you know, opening up, you know, with that little bit of a, but not too much, no more than three inches, because if you activate it too much, unless it's a streamer fly, if it's something that's supposed to be a bug that you're swinging, then you don't want to, you know, make it do things that no natural bug could possibly do, so. Very subtle pumping, you know, with your line handle is enough to activate the fly. But So that's the basic wet fly swing. It's really that simple. Throw it to 90s, follow it with your rod tip all the way to the bank, and uh, move on down and make another one. Another one, I, I should say this, adding this, a lot of people come into Spain and they read about the classic Scottish method, which is you make your cast you walk down three steps and repeat, right? But actually, in trout spay, that methodology was for salmon pools on the River Spay in Scotland, where they knew the fish were there, right? And uh, so you want to go down real slow through that. But when you're just fishing the water for trout, I would ditch that three-step method, uh, make a cast, fish it out, make another cast, and do the walk down. When you do the walk down, you make your cast out at 90 degrees, let the line fix so it's under a little tension, and walk down real slow while watching it and keeping contact with the fly. You don't want to walk too fast and outrun the fly and the fish grab it, and you don't even know because the line's slack. So you follow it down under tension. That'll usually bring you down to all it comes all the way to the bank. That'll usually bring you down about seven or ten steps, you know, and then repeat it there. Now, that's on big water. If you're fishing in very small water where the fish might be concentrated, well, then you stay right there and make a bunch of casts on it, right? Right. So it would depend right. on, you know, it would depend on the situation, how many steps you take between casts moving down. But you're better off to keep moving, cover a lot of water, cover a lot of potential customers. Don't become an abalone and just stand in one spot. Now, if you've got fish on top your visible fish that you're casting to, will stay right there. And what you want to do is get 45 degrees from the fish. Don't cast straight towards them, where your line's going to splash on the water near them. You want the fly drifting into them. So if you got a spot of rising fish feeding on a cadet hatch or whatever, position yourself 45 degrees upstream of them. Cast straight out and let the fly swing down into them. And the fly is going to come alive right at about 45 degrees. So. And right at that point, you could apply a ring lift by stopping the rod, and uh, the fly would lift a little bit. So that's the basic <sighs> swing. Now, if you're, fish, that's if you're fishing something that might be drab or something to stimulate something alive, right? But if you're fishing a lure, say, an attractor fly, it's all bright colors and stuff, something that's acting as a lure, not doesn't look like anything in life. Now, on that one, I might thrive, throw my, you, you've got to get the fly activated. That's why the fish don't want to get a, a good look at that kind of fly going slow, right, not activated, just drifting. Sometimes it'll take it, but mainly if it's a bright, gaudy lure, they want it moving. It wants to be activated right away. So in that case, like what steelheads say, so in that case, I would throw more downstream, more towards 45 degrees, so the fly is instantly activated in the current. And swinging. So depending on the kind of fly. So I would say if you're using a an attractor fly, a lure, get it going a little bit more downstream. So it you know the water's going to pick it up and activate it right away. There's not going to be any drift portion. If right. the fly is more something to simulate a live food form, then throw it 90. You know, and let it go through that drift portion, that natural drift portion, which should be between 90 degrees and 45 degrees. Okay. But
0: you always let that swing move all the way through, like you said, to the bank, cover all the water right. that you possibly can. Right. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah, you might pick up a customer, and he might follow it all the way to the bank before he seals the deal. So.
0: Yeah. I've caught, I don't know how many times I've, with a tangled line or something, caught fish with my line <laughs> sure, <laughs> dangling like down the, the bank, the
2: right? Yeah, yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, you if gotta...
1: your fly ends up if your fly ends up at the end of the swing in fairly deep water there where there still might be a fish, yeah. and perform yeah. the drop back. A lot of people mistakenly call that the Ring lift, but it's actually not. The fly does not lift at the end of the swing. It's already lifted. <laughs> it's yeah. already there. Yeah. So what you're doing there is when you pull on it, it doesn't really make it rise. It makes it come forward. But that's yeah. not bad either, because if it's in good water, do that. you know, Raise the rod, pull the fly forward, and then drop the tip back down again. That's called the drop back. Okay? And when yeah. it gets back down there, sweep the rod from left to right. Let the current let the fly hunt from left to right. So you know, that methodology can be used when you're swinging from a a point to straight downstream from a point that water can't be reached any other way. You can fish the what we call the dangle, fish the dangle that way. Drop the yeah. fly down, and sweep it. it. Just you know, some people might think that's dirty, but really it's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked a couple of times there. You mentioned the Lycering, uh lift. And you did donate i mean uh dedicate a good portion of your book to that. Do you want to talk about that man and and how he affected our wet fly fishing today
1: Wise and ring yeah, I probably too. I might even be able to read you something from my book here on Li ring. I have to find it here. The first book i ever read was james wy ring's uh the Art of the wet Fly published in the year I was born nineteen fifty two maybe a year before fifty one And Pete Heide did a revised version that came out around 1970, sometime between '70 and '72. And uh, I was a kid, and I was a local on the San Gabriel River, which is I don't know, might only be 25 miles as the crow flies from downtown Los Angeles. There, up on Azusa Canyon, and there was wild trout there. And uh, I read that was you know I gathered pop bottles from building sites (laughs) to buy the first book I ever bought. And I read it, and I tried some of the flies from it up on the San Gabriel, and my game just went up crazy good from then. And I've just been, you know, interested in the approach ever since. Nothing so special. It's just really simple, almost simple kind of flies you could make. You look at most insects, uh, stream and insects, they're very, very simple, right? So uh, the approach is... Uh, very elegant. The flies are very elegant and uh, work really well. Uh, they're really adapted to swinging in Trout's Bay. Uh, mm-hmm. The approach is really, really good. and They work with the flies, work really good on the swing. So, uh, but the lift itself,
0: it. you want to describe it? it may, some people, some of the newer anglers may not know about that. Uh,
1: right. Well, yeah, like I said, it's a misnomer, about, you know, lifting the rod at the end of the swing. A lot of people right. nowadays have never read the ring. They think that's what the leisner ring lift is, just because writers have described it that way wrongly. But the way leisner ring describes it exactly okay. as I already did, you stand 45 degrees from your target, make your cast, get tight on your line, and when you fly, you think your fly is into the fish, You follow the fly down with your rod, and when you think it's into the fish or right before you think it gets to the fish, stop the rod. And when you stop the rod, the water will lift the fly,
2: Mm -hmm. okay?
1: If it's it's not too far below the surface, if it's only maybe six inches below the surface, you're using a floating line. It's only sunk that much, right, when when it's gotten to the fish. But when you stop the rod, it's still going to rise towards the surface film, two, three, four inches, whatever, but just that little movement is very subtle. It's just that little movement, that little rise, if you're competing with a Brazilian natural from the hatch, that little movement is gonna simulate exactly what they're doing, what those bugs are doing. So it's right. very, very effective over hatches. And it's simply a matter of delivering your rod at 90 degrees, and when your target's at 45 degrees, Stop following the fly with the rod. Stop the rod. The fly will rise. That's a rising wing lift. Yeah, yeah.
0: And 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 since most...
1: uh, Go ahead.
0: Yeah, when we're fishing, and Bob Younger was asking this uh, on a question, he says, are soft tackle flies used? And that's primarily the style of flies you're using, right? Because you're you're trying to simulate an emerging insect, and that's, that's the lift, right?
1: Yep. And there's the big difference between steel... Spay fishing, you know, classic spay fishing for salmon and steelhead and trout spay. And trout spay is the added element that, you know, the age-old fly fishing element that we're matching the hatch or mm-hmm. trying to simulate. It's more of a simulative approach with soft tackles. You can tie them to match the coloration. You know, you can, you know, they still simulate though. They're not exact imitations. They don't need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. So it makes it easy for a guy. You can carry a half a dozen variations and several sizes and pretty much cover everything. But I would say they are essential. They're an essential part of trout Bay.
0: Okay. Okay. Let me take another quick break here, and then um, we'll get into talking a little bit more about presentation and flies. Since uh, most of your book is um, devoted to different patterns that have uh, served you well over the years, so Uh, Give me just a moment, and we'll come right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts wouldn't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, and we're talking with Steve Bird about Chalk's Bay and the Art of the Swing. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. And fill out that Q&A text box, and uh, we'll try to get your question answered tonight before the end of the show. Okay, Steve. Um, oh, we did have Phil McCartney in California just came in on the Internet. Uh, he says, what's the most common mistake you see others make in swinging flies? And what is your plan B when swung flies are ignored by the fish that you are sure are present?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think of the biggest mistake because I see so many. Would you mind reading that to me again?
0: Yeah, I'll read the first part. Uh, What is the most common mistake that you see others make in swinging flies?
1: Well, that covers a really broad. uh, (laughs) 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 Most (laughs) common is the key. Most common. Yeah, well, the common, the most common mistake I see is uh, people's method of approach presentation is in presentation and there's several things there uh the lot we don't even know what the lateral line on a fish can do but we do know and i do know that since it is a well-developed incredibly well-developed bullshit meter pre <laughs> it can sense your presence so the biggest mistake i see people make is their presence for one thing, metal tip the wading staff. They bang every time they hit the rock, OK? So that's, you ever get in the bathtub and bang on the side and hear how that sounds? Yeah. Right? Put yeah. your head under the water, how that carries. Lots yeah. of what of metal-tipped uh, wading staff will do. So forget getting, you know, the ones that got a little cleat on the tip, right, or a little thing to grip, supposedly grip the rocks. So right away, if you have a waiting staff, make your own out of wood. Nothing grips. Don't put a tip on it. Rubber tips will stick between the inner and the rocks and trip you. Nothing makes less noise or grips rocks better than a plain wooden tip, and they will last forever. Make one. Go cut yourself Uh one. So, you know, it's making noise. People moving too fast, not watching their feet on the rocks, clicking rocks, making noise shouting out to friends, I got one you know, everything's you know, yeah. you just upset the whole atmosphere with your presence. And you're gonna yeah. turn off every fish within a half a mile just by what you're doing, what you're thinking. You get your your mind's on fire when you jump out of the truck and you're you're busy minded and you're you're not getting into the what we call the zone which is becoming part of your environment. That's the biggest right. mistake I see people make. Okay. It's not okay. Ob, not observing being noisy and not becoming part of their environment when they're fishing. Okay. That's the second mistake. part of. Now we can go into of, a whole bunch of lesser mistakes too, if you want. <laughs> no,
0: we yeah we got to move on. We up. want to make uh, this all
1: about mistakes. Yeah. Um, but that's Phil, the the,
0: Yeah, the second part of his question was, "What is your plan B when swung flies are ignored by the fish you are sure are present?"
1: Well, being absorbent, then that could be one of a number of things. That would depend on what my observation is telling me to resort to for plan B, right? I mean, that could be a lot of things. Might mean a change in flies, of course, Uh obviously. And that would probably be the first thing I did. But if I was fishing something that I know should work and I'm seeing fish and they aren't taking it, I would probably switch to a different color. You know, if I would have the right size and profile, then I might try a different color. But I would check and make sure I had the right size and profile for what they were feeding on. If they're feeding on insects, and I'm that's probably why I'm seeing them, there's something about that that they're keying on. So I would try to look for that, maybe with some fly changes. Okay. Possibly a lighter tippet if I could get away with it, too.
0: Okay. Okay, Okay. let's talk, because uh, we are running down on time here. Okay, uh, Trey Owings has another question here. Are you giving your fly movement or a pop during the swing?
1: Right, yeah, we went through that before, the little three-inch pulls, right, to activate the mm-hmm. fly. Most of the time I do. Now, during mayfly, if I'm fishing over a mayfly hat? March browns, for example, are a good one to swing over. And somebody asked them the questions about insects, some of them being better than others, some better than others to swing over. I would say yes. I would say all caddis hatches are great. Caddis hatches are the friend of fly swingers. But also some of the, all the drakes are good, the larger mayflies. Uh, March browns are good. So uh, what was the question again? I'm going off on a tangent. He
0: was just talking about the fly movement or pop during the Right,
1: yeah, I I would. I'd go both ways. If it's not working with movement, I'd try it without movement. Okay. If it's not working without movement, then I would try it with some movement. But definitely try it both ways. Sometimes they don't want any movement. And the thing is, any good wet fly, well-constructed wet fly, is going to have a lot of built-in movement. It's going to be built with soft materials, natural materials that absorb and reflect light, the same as UV, actually. Any questions about UV? Natural materials, the UV thing is already covered because they're going to absorb and reflect light just like any other natural bug would, you know, as far as UV goes. But natural materials that have movement, built-in movement in the fly, you know, basically you really want to... The structure flies so that they have built-in movement, and that usually will be enough, but if the water's slow, a little slower, whatever, you definitely, you find yourself your fly, you know, kind of logging out at the end of the swing. It's in some kind of froggy water there or something. Well, you definitely want to retrieve through that, you know. Uh, uh-huh. Again, okay. just enough retrieve to keep in contact with the fly, and that will activate the fly as well, just you keeping in contact with it, so.
0: Okay, let's uh, let's move on and uh, t- yeah, talk more about flies here. Uh, as you he told me earlier, this is a, a friend of yours, Duncan, in uh, Missoula, Montana. He
1: says, I think what about- I think that's Duncan, and that might be Big D. I'm not sure. That could be him, though.
0: <laughs> what about certain rivers inspire your fly design?
1: Uh, well, there's a lot of factors that would go into that. It would, for one, it would mean the kind of fish were there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I knew there were brown trout, I'm going to just, Duncan, we're going to stay away from steelhead and just go to trout here. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah. was, That's if, another if whole was, show, yeah. Right. That's if there old. was brown trout or bull trout, say, or white fish eaters there that I was fishing for, then I would definitely go to a larger fly design going after them, right? If there were mm-hmm. cutthroats or brookies, for example, there, rainbows, too then I might, you know, go to, well, Brookies and Cutthroats, for example, I might go to a, a more gaudy type fly. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why I was approaching waters I'd never been before that I didn't have any idea what to use, right? So that would be, those would be considerations. Water clarity would be a consideration. Is it cloudy? Is it clear? If it's cloudy, then I would probably go with something all black, you know, or something really gaudy and larger so they could see it. The water's real clear. you got to remember if you cut open a trout and check what's in the stomach, there's very, rarely anything in there over an inch long. Mm-hmm. so you know I would stay with something you know if I was just exploring but I want to get something up, I might go with something like in a number eight, right, which would uh, take pretty much anything that was there. It would be big enough to interest the larger fish, but still small enough to take the interest the smaller fish as well. So a lot of factors involved there. Water speed, to an extent, it was real fast water everywhere, pretty much. I'd probably go with uh a tractor or a lure-type fly to start with because, you know, fish in fast water, they have to make up their mind quick, plus they can see that from a distance. It's visible, so I'd go with something that was visible, you know, to them, a lure-type. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's uh, lower water, I'd go to something more drab and buggy. Do you, so, uh, a lot of factors.
0: Yeah. Do you fish multi-fly rigs?
1: Once in a while. I don't like to. Okay. Probably for the same reason, a lot of people don't like to because you know, no matter how good a caster you are, you're going to tangle them, and then you're out. And actually, a single fly presents better okay. than a double. You know, you notice when you use a double, usually it's your, your trailer fly that's catching the most fish because mm-hmm. the uh, mm-hmm. you know the top fly is uh, girdled. So uh, I more sometimes though when I'm desperate and I'm searching. I'll tie on a second, but I'll fish two so I can see if, uh, you know, I can get something the to The house comes up there, yeah. yeah.
0: Now, you've got, I don't know, how many how many flies do you have in your book? There's uh, the in
1: the, the fly section, the fly catalog is about 200 patterns. About 200, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. So With can you kind of,
0: we only have about five minutes left, but can you kind of highlight a few of your favorites in your book that have served you well oh. over the years?
1: Well, if I was going to start with the small, if I'm small working up, the smallest one, small one I would like and probably always carry would be an olive sedge mm-hmm. that would cover a lot of caddis species, right, caddis right. submergers,
0: right? Green body. So we're yeah.
1: really mainly fishing the emergence stage. And if you want the dressing for that, that would be the 10 to 18 hook. Generally, I'll tie that on a number 14. Uh, I like to have some hook there to sink it and some iron for bigger fish. So I'll tie, on a number 14, I'll tie down to number 18. In other words, I'll tie a number 18 size fly on a number 14 hook.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I don't like to go smaller than a number 14 hook for swinging. Uh, the thread on that could be camel or brown. The hackle is brama hen, which is speckled hen. The uh, speckled India henbacks are really good for that, or partridge silver wire rib and a medium olive rabbit dubbing and a hair's mask thorax very simple
0: mhm yeah yeah uh, yeah pretty little fly
1: what's in another addition one? to that i would have some soft tackle pheasant tails you know and some uh hare's ears soft okay. tackle hair's ears a partridge and peacock you want some of those which is basically just a peacock body and either gray or brown faced partridge tackle Silver or copper rib, simple as that. I noticed you my even favorite. have a purple
0: haze in there.
1: <laughs> there purple is haze,
0: wet fly, yeah. yeah.
1: There is, but I'm going to give away one of my favorites here, which is the uh, woodcutter, which woodcutter. is kind of a take a, up on an Irish fly, Irish-style fly. Uh, and its uh, it's got a, a golden pheasant tippet tail. This is an order tied in. Uh, copper rib olive dark olive hairs mask you could mix in a little bit of uh mix in a little bit of hairline uh shrimp uv dub into that for some flash and uh it's palmered with a uh brown hackle uh schlappen is good softer and then the uh, front hackle on that could be natural guinea or sometimes i do some versions of it with a church window cock pheasant body feather as well on the front
0: now, this is looking more like a streamer than a wet fly to me
1: um huh? uh, <laughs> well, no, it's a actually it's an Irish style wet fly mm-hmm. it looks really good on the swing, yeah, it's kind of like you know but again it's it's really kind of exemplifies uniquely trout stay pattern. It kind of looks like something halfway between a streamer and you know mm-hmm. some yeah. top, something else.
0: You've got a lot more okay. going on it than the typical wet fly. Then. The one The other ones you described already. Yeah, which are much simpler. Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and that yeah. one, you know, you you could. Uh, that's but that's my favorite. That one works for me everywhere. It seems like I carry it everywhere. And really. Number four. I tie it number four to number eight. I've also mm. recently heard it was a killer steelhead fly on the Snake River. So. <laughs> okay, okay,
0: okay. <laughs> One to – I'm yeah. going to have to look into. I don't have any of those in my box, so I'm going to have to – It does
1: uh, look a lot like a steelhead with... fly as well, really. Yeah. It actually looks more like a steelhead fly than a streamer.
0: Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's that's where – yeah, yeah, it's kind of looking to me.
1: Okay, well, good, good. Those are a few
0: goodies, tidbits for you folks out there. You'll have to get uh, – you have to get Stephen's book to get the rest of them. <laughs> Somewhat. What did you say? There's 200? a lot in there. As, yeah. far
1: as, the, right. as far as rigging lines, there's a whole section in there on line types and, and their usages. I could have went through that just that question alone for an hour. But like I said, yeah. there's a whole, yeah. there's a whole long chapter of that really in depth in the book. So anybody interested in rigging, it's there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, and uh, also,
1: there's a chapter in there on fishing small streams as well with a single-hander using the same methods. Right,
0: so. right. Yep, lots of, lots of great information. So, uh, folks, if you don't win Stephen's book tonight, be sure to check it out. We've got a link on the home page there on the website, right-hand column, and on his uh, speaker's page and stuff. link takes you right to where you can order and, and get the book from Stephen. So uh, check that out. It's a beautiful book, wonderful photography of all the flies, too in color and so forth. So I uh, highly, highly recommend it. Um, well, Stephen, unfortunately it's time to wrap things up. But when we return, we'll be giving away a one-year membership, to Fly Fishers International, a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And we'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole book. I mean, your book, not courtesy of Stackpole, was your book, Trout, Spay and the Art of the Swing, courtesy of you and, uh, and swing the fly press. So hang tight, and uh, we'll be right back after this short message, and we'll give away those prizes. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a -a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trap flies, waiters, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org or call them at 616-855-4017. Again, it's fishon.org or call them at 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder, everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under Tonight's Show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So it's now the time to give away our prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database, And if you didn't uh, register already, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you have a chance at winning one of these great prizes. The winners for our drawings will contact you after the show and hook you up so that uh, you're able to receive the the prize that you won. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be part of. If you don't win, go join. Simple as that. So check them out. Our winner for that is Tom Paulson in California. Tom Paulson in California. So congratulations, Tom. And uh, I know you'll enjoy your your membership to FFI. And secondly, we're giving away one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. And again, great organization to support. Go join if you don't win. That's the message. So our winner there is Douglas McLean. Douglas McLean in Alabama. So congratulations, Douglas. And I know you'll enjoy your your membership to to TU as well. Okay, so now time to give away Steve Bird's book, Trout's Bay and the Art of the Swing, and Let's see here. So the way that you play this game is uh, I'm going to give you a question. And if you're the first person to answer the question correctly, then you'll win the book. Now, the way that you answer the question is on our homepage, the same form that you used to, uh, use during the show to, to uh, ask uh, questions. Just fill out that with your name and your email address, and uh, we will look for your correct answer. Steve mentioned what he thought was kind of ideal rod weight and length for trout spay. He actually mentioned two, so either one would be work. Tell me what length and weight of that rod would be best for what most of us fish the smaller rivers and so forth. Okay. This uh you're gonna have to help me with this one, Steve, and uh Okay. Make sure we get the right Thing. Okay, we've got a couple coming in here. So um, this one is, okay, the first one in here is 11 foot 5, 3 weight. Is that correct? One of the uh, correct things?
1: Close enough.
0: Close enough. Okay, Treg Owings, you just got yourself a book, uh, first guy in with, uh, and he also added match your rod to the size of the water and the size of the fish and the size of the fly. So, but, uh, yeah, we were looking, we were looking for that lightweight, uh, rod that we could use on most of the smaller rivers. And, uh, so congratulations, Treg. Treg has been listening, I think, uh, ever since I started this show. So, uh. He's a long-time listener, and I certainly appreciate his his attention to my show. So, great. Thanks a lot, Treg, for playing the game. And uh, you know the routine. Uh, send me your address in there, and then I will get that over to Stephen, and Stephen will send you that book directly. Treg's up in Idaho, so you guys are pretty close up there, too. And he'll uh, hey, uh, is that, uh is Treg? you. Treg. Treg. No, really? Treg Owings.
1: Trey, Tregal. congratulations, Trey.
0: Yeah, yeah, not uh, Trey, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, a good mention is uh, that uh, the foreword for Stephen's book was written by Trey Combs, who I will be interviewing on my next show, and I didn't even know that, and and they're back-to-back shows. So Trey is a longtime steelhead fly fisher up in the same neck of the woods as Stephen And um, so they're connected there. And I just thought that was an interesting connection that wasn't planned at all. So anyway, we'll look forward to interviewing Trey on our next show. Steve, thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing all your knowledge. And, um, again, I encourage everybody to get Steve's book, and you'll learn a lot about uh, trout spay. So thanks for sharing your experiences with us tonight.
1: Uh, You're welcome. Be kind. Do no harm. (laughs) Okay. All
0: right. And be safe. <laughs> Hopefully, you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 385 shows now, which you can search by keyword keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, trout, spade, those kinds of things. Go ahead and explore, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by all that you discover out there. Our next broadcast will be on October 25th, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Trey Combs, and our topic for the show will be a lifetime of fly fishing for steelhead. Trey has been fly fishing, guiding, and writing about steelhead for more than 50 years. He's an expert on this fish and has now written his fourth book on steelhead. Join us to learn about the history of steelhead fishing and all that he has learned about fishing for this extraordinary and challenging fish. Be sure to add an upcoming show to your calendar. Just click on that Add to Calendar button just below Chase Photograph, and you can add it to whatever calendar you're using. We'd like to thank Flyfishers International, Trout Unlimited, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com. And make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone,
2: and good fishing.